and welcome to Farscape Friday, episode 78. I'm Kay, here with my co-host, Taz. Hey there. Today we'll be discussing the 12th episode of season 4, Kansas. Let's get started. Welcome back. Here's a quick summary of Kansas. Moya is able to hear John through the wormhole, and he tells Dargo how to navigate the wormhole to come and get him. When he's saved, it's undercut by the knowledge that he may have already changed something, since he's in his own past. As everybody except for Scorpius and Sokozu go back to 1980s Earth, John confronts the very real elements of his past and tries not to get himself killed back to the future style. So remember how much was made of last episode in Unrealized Reality of not going back to a place at a previous time? Well, John did that. So Kansas shows us what happens and how to fix it. So it's like a very practical example of how to fix something gone wrong uh, in our new understanding of how wormholes work. And it's got a bunch of tropes that we've seen Farscape use before. It's got time travel. It's got returning to Earth. It's got the aliens trying to fit in on Earth. It's got John confronting another one of his selves. We've got him and his dad. We've got him and his mother. Um, but it's a real Earth episode because they are actually on Earth. And it's John confronting his past. So it feels really organic that all these things blend together into an actually a really good killer episode, in my opinion. Yeah, I really like this episode a lot. I think that many of my issues with it are fairly minor. The sort of issues that like, if you tell somebody about them, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, I mean, I guess, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And so for me, the the big issue, the kind of starter issue, which I guess we'll just jump into the episode, because <laughs> that was kind of my yeah. main thought was that I liked this episode, but there were... And my only issues with it were fairly minor. The episode starts with John being rescued. The rest of them get in Dargo's ship. So we've got Dargo, Aaron, Chiana, Rigel, and Naranti. And then they leave Scorpius and Sokozu on the ship. And it makes zero sense to me. <laughs> like, I'm, I, I, I get narratively why. I get... That the I get that everybody was like, come on, we have to have everybody on Earth. And of course, they're not going to let Scorpius come. And Sokozu isn't going to leave without Scorpius. And, you know, so like I get and also Sokozu has no interest in Earth. But I'm also kind of like, I don't see Rigel who got dissected going to Earth. But I'm like, I get why they wanted to write Rigel going to Earth. So I had that little niggling of why are they all going to? So here's my in-universe answer. First of all, to address the Rigel point, Rigel had a great time on the fake Earth. Like, he didn't even see his own body get dissected. He got to go to the party room afterwards and have marjules with the ancients. So I don't think he's that traumatized by a human reaction as we the audience were and Aaron and John were by seeing his dissected body. The in-universe reason I have is they can't take Scorpius or... Or Sokozu, because they don't trust them enough, right? Mm -hmm. Sokozu, they trust marginally more. And so Dargo, Aaron, and Gianna are, of course, going, because they have really strong ties to John, and they are not going to be left out of rescuing him. And Aaron has to pilot the ship, Dargo has to, like, control the ship, and Gianna's not going to be left behind, because Gianna. 
And that said, I feel like they care enough about Noranti and Rigel that they don't want them to be overpowered by Scorpius and Sukozu and have Scorpius do something nefarious to them because that'd be giving him hostages. Mm-hmm. I mean, Moya and Pilot, they actually have no choice about. So also, those are also the people that Scorpius can do the least with, I think. Yeah. So anyway, that was my in-universe hand wave. I agree. It's a really weird setup because clearly the writers want everybody on Earth, but I don't know. That's kind of what I came up with to try and explain it. See, and that's what I mean about my like niggling stuff where I'm like, you know, yeah, you tell somebody like, hey, here's this niggle I had. And they're like, hey, but okay, here's this possible in-universe explanation. You know what I mean? And like, I'll agree with you. I'll agree with you about Pilot and Moya because I think if we all remember back to not uh, back to the flax. Yeah, it was the flax Mm -hmm. where if a female Leviathan doesn't want you to take her over, she will mess you up, you know? Yeah. And Scorpius doesn't have the peacekeeper ability of like a control caller immediately or anything like that. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so that's kind of kind of where I was coming from with that. So we have everybody following John's calm and he tells them how to get to him. And I feel like they're, he's basically telling them to navigate based on radio signals of the of his mm-hmm. calm, which is, seems legit, you know, tracing back which which entrance of the wormhole that his signal is coming out of. So they all arrive on Earth. And the first thing John wants to know, because he's just had this horrendous, fearful lecture from Einstein about never going back to your past, is can we pick up a transmission? And he gets a transmission. And it's a news station talking about the Reagan administration. So 1980s. And John is like, uh, I might have messed up here. Yeah. And I have to say, it's heartbreaking how happy Aaron is for him Yeah, before they get the signal. Like, her face is just, like, totally, like, excited for him. And that feels so different than her reaction to wormholes in season three and season... Yeah, pretty much season three and season two a little bit as well. Yeah. But... Where in those, it was kind of this terror of like, wormholes are going to take you away from me. Wormholes are dangerous. Like she didn't like wormholes. And then now they're here and she's just so excited for him that he gets to go home. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And then he has to tell them like, oh, no, this is not actually my home. And now we have to go down to the planet. And this was like another one of those like niggling things where I think I figured it out when I started really thinking about it, which is that. It's not so much the butterfly effect of like Mm -hmm. you actually being there will do something minor that will change major things. It's the fact that all of these are alternate universes where something Mm -hmm. is already slightly different. And I think that time wants to go back to your timeline. It wants to snap back to your timeline as the time traveler, as the wormhole traveler, right? Right. So what John wants to go down and see what is already different, not something that he has caused to be different by floating up in space during the Reagan administration when they would have no way of sensing Dargo's ship. Like nowadays, yeah. I might be like, well, with all the satellites and with ISS up there, like maybe they would be able to sense Dargo's ship. But I'm like, in the Reagan administration, I just don't think they have that technology. No. No, not, I mean, we had satellites, but they're all in low Earth orbit. And if Dargo's ship is farther out, and most of those satellites are looking down at Earth anyway, they're not looking up. We don't think the big telescopes have really, really gone up there by then. In any case, yeah, so he goes down. He goes down alone. So 
Dargo has cloaked Lola. The rest of the crew is sitting in the ship. He goes to his neighborhood because what he learned from Einstein, what he says early on, is the big changes will start close to me because I am the time traveler. And so that's where he's going to go look at his own family home where he was a teenager at the time. And he goes and he sees that his mom and dad and the sheriff and his sister Olivia and himself, who's carrying a bottle of champagne for the party, are having a party in the back patio of the house because his dad has just been named the captain of the Challenger mission. And at first, I want to say that space shuttles have commanders. So that's I thought a little it said commander. I thought it said captain. Well, okay, <laughs> sharp eyed viewers, sharp eyed viewers, let, her, let us know if it's a commander or a captain. I'm pretty sure it was c- commander. I'll go back and double check it, but that I feel like, anyway, point being, his dad is going to be going on the Challenger, which is 1986, and it blows up after launch. And it was a really big tragedy for NASA and lost six crew people. And set the space program back a while. Uh, Yeah, a little while. Yeah, for sure. But not just that, but it's a, it would be a personal tragedy for John. And when he gets back to the crew, Rigel actually asks about that. And that's the first clip I want to play. Not to be insensitive, but in the scheme of things, well, what does it matter if your father flies and dies? My father got me started in avionics. No dad, no Farscape project. You stay in peacekeeper custody. She remains a Nazi. She ends up on the Bari Prime. We get it. How do we fix this? Einstein said the change ripples out from the first mutation. We fix that, everything else falls back into place. So if you can get your father to refuse this challenger flight... Everything should turn back to normal. Look, we can't all stay here. I don't know how long this is going to take, but I know a place where we might hang out. And we have one piece of luck. Tomorrow's Halloween. What's that? Well, that's something that means you're going to fit in just fine, Grandma. And, okay, so again... Like, this is kind of one of those things where I think that we're just going to have to, like, ignore the headache that unrealized reality provided with us, which is the idea that even if it is an unrealized reality, you can jump out of it and possibly go back to the normal reality. And so they have to back to the future this. They have to fix it. You know, they have to keep his father off of the Challenger mission. Mm -hmm. And the writers have thankfully provided us an explanation why <laughs> Rigel, Dargo, and Chiana can walk around. And also and also Naranti, but I think Naranti could have gotten away spocking it with like a headband. Yeah, know? she does later on too. Yeah. But yeah, so Halloween, it reminded me of E.T. when they have the Halloween, everyone goes out for Halloween. I feel like it's a, it's a classic like hide the aliens at Halloween kind of deal. But I also just love Rigel at the beginning being like, not to be insensitive, which is basically saying, I'm going to be really insensitive right now and ask why we care about your dad, because he is a cautious person. You know, he doesn't want to do any more work that he has to do. And I love, though, that when John explains the ripple effect that he wouldn't have been on the Farscape project, he wouldn't have been on Moya. And their escape in the premiere is from the Peacekeepers. It's all down to John using his his theory of uh, slingshot. slingshot maneuver to get Moya away without propulsion. Mm-hmm. So it becomes very personal for everybody. It's not just John and his past and his earth life and losing his dad. It's all of them will be affected about it because John has touched all their lives in a really deep, meaningfully life-changing way. 
Mm-hmm. And it's important that he calls out Aaron as being Nazi, again, with the peacekeeper and the Nazi metaphor, which we've we've kind of mentioned and we kind of dropped because the, the show has kind of moved away from that imagery, that, that really strong imagery that it had in season one. Mm-hmm. And it's important because of the Scorpius and Sokozu plotline, but we're going to get to that at the very end of the episode. We haven't forgotten about them. They're still on Moya. Yeah. But I think it's important that he calls out the the peacekeepers not good guys you know right right i still think that the peacekeepers are more in line with romans but that's neither here nor there anyway so so they go down to earth and the house that john's gonna have them hide out in is a house that's abandoned on the neighborhood the guy was arrested for drug dealing and then so it had been foreclosed and he'd been arrested and then some gang kids were hanging out in the house afterwards and so there's there's pictures that John one of the pictures John's looking at is one of the gang kids flipping off the camera doing various things which of course and a little bit later Norianti and Chiana are looking at and being like what does that mean and Chiana says I think it's a greeting so then she tries out flipping off Norianti to say hey there <laughs> which becomes important later on. Well, not really important, but funny later on. It's one of the gags of the episode. This is a lot of funny Earth alien stuff going on in it, which is one reason I liked it so much. Yeah, I feel like this definitely fulfills our desire to see, hey, what would happen if Moya was just on Earth? You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'll get to my overall feelings of this, maybe at the end of this episode, but probably at the beginning of next episode. But... I, I really enjoy so much of this episode because it's just so fun. You know? Yeah, and it's really visually funny mm-hmm. because you have, you know, they're they're dressing up. They're, they are they have, like, clothes from the 70s or what uh, Chiana starts going through and eventually dresses up in a dress and tights. Mm-hmm. And Aaron dressed up like Cher. It, yeah, and it's just, it's just a lot of visually fun stuff and a lot of the gags are visual, too. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, I feel like it's not as visually hilarious as the Vegas episode. What was mm-hmm. that? Um, uh, scratch and Sniff. Scratch and Sniff. But yeah. at the same time, it has like all of these elements that as a viewer, you've been waiting four seasons <laughs> for the crew to get to Earth. And this is just so satisfying. You it know? really is. It really and, is. And like, we'll get to literally my favorite moment in the whole episode later, but after setting them up in this drug house, John goes back to his own house and he sees his younger self being a teenager, throwing mm-hmm. a temper tantrum, screaming at everybody, and then driving off in his truck. And there's and, and I am a I'm a Farscape viewer and I love Farscape in the sense that I am now running a podcast about how much I love Farscape. <laughs> But I also could not tell you how many siblings John has. I could not tell you the names. I can tell you that. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. Taz can tell you all of that. But that's the kind of casual viewer I am. So I need to describe this next scene as a viewer who's like, okay, those two women must be his, or those two kind of teenage looking women must be his sisters. So his mom and his dad are outside and he's yelling at his dad. He's really mad that his dad is, I guess going on his space mission yeah they actually don't really say right then what he's mad about it's kind of this generic fight and where they're like oh you know why he's mad and we find out a little bit later so it's a combination i think of mad that his dad's going mad about how his parents interact and stuff like that yeah and so which is partially i think a teenage thing but we'll get to that it's in definitely a, minute. a teenage thing anyway keep going so <laughs> then he drives off his dad's like fine 
I'm not going to go on Monday. I'm going to go tomorrow, which is kind of a weird line because John interprets it as like, oh, no, now my dad isn't going up in the space mission on Monday. He's going up tomorrow. And I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure it just means he's going to campus. Like, Yeah. And I actually, I didn't read that as him leaving, going to space tomorrow or anything like that, but just leaving earlier, which gives them less of a window to stop him from going at all. Yeah. That was my interpretation of that. And then the younger girl and the mom go inside. Dad obviously goes inside and slams the door, which leaves like the older teenager outside. John somehow gets like obsessed with milk. And he, he like, sees the milk box. Yeah, he sees the milk box. But then I'm also <laughs> like, he like runs out in front of his house and then he runs like with invisible windows, like everything. And he just starts drinking the milk. <laughs> and it's so random because I'm like, I get wanting to drink the milk. Go steal somebody else's milk. You're trying to like run a con on your family. Anyway, again, like niggling. I think it's perfectly within John's character to do that because he's being really impulsive about all these things that he's missed. And suddenly there's milk. And food is like one of those things that you just miss the most when you're yes. in a different place. Like there's nothing like coming home to the food that you grew up with. And I think... I think that's part of it. And he doesn't see Kim, who's the teenage girl who is standing awkwardly outside of the Crichton household because she's kind of behind a wall and he's coming in from the side because he was hiding behind in the bushes off to the side. So he doesn't see her at first and he thinks he's alone. Okay, but I have to get back to the fact that I thought (laughs) Kim was his sister. Yeah. And then he has this incredibly flirtatious conversation with her. And Mm -hmm. I was like very very uncomfortable because I couldn't (laughs) tell if it's just that Ben Browder has chemistry with like cactuses you know like that he can have chemistry with anything he puts his mind to but I was literally like why are you flirting with your sister this makes me very uncomfortable (laughs) (laughs) and he's kind of talking to her in a way of like somebody that he's lost and so Mm -hmm. me and my husband were both like does she die like what happens but then later on we find out it's actually his girlfriend but the show young doesn't. John's. Yeah, young, young John's, John's girlfriend. Girl. Yeah, it's yeah. teenage John's girlfriend. And I'm like, oh, that makes that conversation make so much more sense because yeah. otherwise he was flirting with his sister, which is, again, incredibly awkward. Yeah, and he does have two sisters. We learned that in, well, we know he has more than one sister, I'll put it that way, from Look at the Princess. And I think it's confirmed by the end of this trilogy that he has two sisters. And which never really said explicitly, but I think kind of the consensus has been Olivia is the younger teenage girl, is his younger sister, and then he has an older sister who in this episode is off at college or something like that because she doesn't mm-hmm. come into play at all. But yeah, it is confusing because I think when I first watched this, it was like, is that his sister? Because we know he has more than one. But yeah, it does make a lot more sense when it's his girlfriend and that's why he knows her so well. You know, he's able to identify her favorite spot at the overhang by the canal where John doesn't like to go, but she likes to go and he plays himself off as a distant relative of the family and he's worried about things going on and stuff so Mm -hmm. yeah so john runs off to confront his younger self at the canal because he thinks that obviously the teenager that just threw a temper tantrum and caused (laughs) his dad to leave early is the one to stop his dad from going on the challenger (laughs) all right here's that conversation it's pretty great nice truck Betty. Who are you? My name's John. John Clarence. You know, you should go to the overhang more often. Kim likes it there. What the hell are you doing? Just checking your suspension, brah. Need you to do me a favor. You have to talk to your father. 
I want him not to go up on the shuttle. Look, I don't know who you are, but shove off. People sometimes, but we don't hit. Get off me, you! And no, I am not. You got problems. You're gonna outgrow most of them, and I know why you're upset. You got no idea. Yes, I do. You think he treats her badly? How do you know that? Same way I know you helped DK cheat on his SATs. You wanna go to college, boy? Convince your dad not to fly on the Challenger. You're a spook, right? Come to test the family? Because if you guys knew anything, you'd know I can't convince my dad to do squat. You're wrong. You're wrong! He never listens. Man, when you're right, you're right. I love it when people get to meet their younger selves. I don't know. There's just something about it that just hits all those right spots of like knowing this person so well because you were that person. And I love John introduces himself as John Clarence and Clarence is the guardian angel in uh, It's a Wonderful Life. So I think that's a, a reference to that. And you know, he's just kind of a jerk to his younger self because he, you know, he's just like, I'm just going to mess with your car because it's his car or his truck anyway, Betty. And, uh, but I, I love the line, you know, you're going to outgrow most of your problems. And it's such a, you know, the age of wisdom, mm -hmm. wisdom of age going on right there and knowing where you were and what you were upset about back then and how most of it is going to be fine in the long run. Yeah. And I think that... <laughs> It's also kind of a lie, though, because literally episode one starts with him still having exactly the same problems with his dad. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's not. He says most of his problems, not all of them. And clearly his dad and his mom and all that is still a big thorny knot, right? Because, you know, he he it's immediately pings on that John doesn't like the way his parents interact. He doesn't mm -hmm. think his his dad treats his mom fairly or well or anything like that. And that's that's a pretty big issue. Yeah. And and that's not something that just goes away. And as we know in present day, prior present John, his mom is dead. And so this is like him seeing her again as well. So this is also bringing up all sorts of things for him there. Yeah. And I've been thinking more about John's statement that his dad got him involved in mm -hmm. aeronautics. And I realize that it's actually true, but not really in the straightforward way that I think John thinks of it and not really in the straightforward way that I think he presents it to the crew, which is that I think he got in aeronautics to spite his father. So if his father is dead, it kind of, you know, negates his reason. Maybe he would have gone into bioscience or something else, you know, <laughs> but I think he literally gets into aeronautics because he's like, Dad, you went up in space, but I can go up in space and I can do it faster and better and cheaper. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I don't see it that way. I don't think it's spite. I think there is genuine love between father and son, despite the tension. And he likes it. I mean, I feel like that's why he got into it. It's not all because of his father. It's not like his father, 
yes, there is an element of his father like being the example and feeling like he's in a shadow. And yes, there's tangled up emotions about it. But I don't think that's the only reason. I think there's other reasons, too. Okay, I'll give that to you. (laughs) I think parent-child relationships can be really complicated because... Because you can have all this love and admiration for someone that you're still rubbing against Mm -hmm. and like butting heads with. And so I think you can have both things be true at the same time. So I don't think spite is his only reason. Okay. I think it fuels his ambition. Yeah. But I don't think it's the only thing driving him. But do you think if his dad died in the Challenger, he still would have created Farscape 1? No, not necessarily. And he doesn't believe it either, which makes me think there's another event later on in his life, like college, for instance, or conversations he has later on that would have fueled it going forward. And the other thing is, you know, if he's going to go into the profession that killed his father, then there'd be a whole lot of emotional baggage with that, too. It's like you want to be constantly reminded that this is how your dad died. Yeah, that's true. I mean, not for everybody, but maybe for John, he thinks that would be the case. Yeah. That would turn him away. I don't know. No, no, yeah. I mean, I I agree. And the other thing is I love that he's playing exactly the same character he plays like with most alien species where he's like, I'm going to come in and wreck your stuff (laughs) just to make you irritated because that throws you off your game. You know what I mean? And yeah. like, ugh, he's such a jerk to his younger self. It's like literally the he best. He really is. And then he like, and they can also see how much John has changed too, because he physically manhandles his younger self when his younger self is turning away. And he like reaches into the truck to grab him before he can drive off, grabs his keys. Younger John tries to hit back. And then he basically body slams him into the car saying, we don't hit people. We might shoot them, but we don't hit them. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't know. It's such a, it's kind of like the, you know, the teacher or the parent saying now we don't hit each other but of course this is john Crichton who's lived in the uncharted territories for several years now yeah and he's like he's comfortable with violence he's comfortable with this kind of of physicality that he might not have been when he first came to the uncharted territories yeah well and i mean to be honest like if you're gonna hit anybody i think you might try and at least hit the older man because john is like in his 30s and he's like bullying a teenager you know and <laughs> yeah. i'm kind of like i would be scared like if i was in yeah. my truck and some rando started like jumping in the bed of my truck anyway. yeah and you know that he says like how do you know all this information and and i think younger john's assumption that he's a spook or a, a u.s government spy because remember this is the cold war too it's a pretty good guess about who this person is that knows way too much information and so he's immediately wary and everything mm-hmm. now i want to move on though to my favorite scene in the entire episode <laughs> Which is, Dargo has managed to get the electricity working in the house by randomly splicing wires together. They have a TV working now, which at first everybody is kind of like, what is this? And I'm trying to, I'm treating it as not like, what is a TV? Because I refuse to believe that Earth is the only like species that's invented TVs. I mean, John Quixote shows they had video games, so. Yeah. And more as in like, what is Wheel of Fortune? Which is a good question because I've lived on Earth (laughs) for my entire life and I don't understand Wheel of Fortune. I also love that Erin is a compulsive reader now because she's reading the made in France inside the lamp when it turns on. And so she's like reading everything she can get her, she can see. And then, so she reads the TV when it says wheel of fortune and she kind of giggles because she's, it's like the reading thing has finally clicked in her head and she Mm -hmm. can actually do it now. And it's kind of, it's so cool to see her joy about it all. So this is a scene that follows that, that is because they have now changed the channel to a different program. Dargo, you should study this. 
L-M-N-O-P. Q. Just a few of their words, just in case. Jenna has already told me a few words. Yes, no, bite me. That's all I need to know. R-S. S. This girl is slow. Why are you wearing that? Come on. Aren't you busting to get out? <sighs> We're on Earth. It's Crichton's hometown. John has told us to stay. The cookie monster. Crichton has gotten home. If you don't screw this up, maybe one day he can get me home, too. I don't want to wait for one day. I want to go exploring now. Gianna, I am not permitting you to go. Can you keep it down? I'm trying to listen. Look at the captain down here. It's Halloween. I'll fit in. Gianna, no! Don't go, no, don't go out <laughs> Okay. Let's, let me list all of the things that I love in this entire quote. And I'm going to start with number one. Aaron saying, like... This girl is slow. <laughs> She's watching Sesame Street and it's Kermit doing the alphabet with the little girl. And it's just fantastic because she's like, this is like really great. Why didn't, haven't I had this before to practice my English? <laughs> I love everything. I also love, love that Dargo has already learned three words and or four words and he thinks that's going to be perfectly sufficient. <laughs> yes, no, and bite me that Chiana has taught me, taught him. <laughs> And like, okay, this is another one of those things that I think I'm just going to hand wave because I like this episode so much. But I'm like, later on, everybody is speaking a lot of English, you mm. know? If you think about it, it's really just Chiana and Aaron. Yeah, because I think... Oh, Norianti does Norianti too. speaks a lot of English as well. Yeah. I, Rigel, no, you're right. You're Rigel right. doesn't... Like, Norianti... I think the Norianti actually is more my issue, but maybe her third eye gives her magic language learning and she just <laughs> hasn't used it until now. Yeah, I feel like Chiana is, she's picked up enough because she's, she's never shown as fluent, but she's good at doing like short conversations that don't require a whole lot of, you know, she can do the short phrases and the short sentences and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas Aaron is much more developed because she's been working on it. And Norianti just kind of starts talking and it's unclear. I think some from sometimes it's unclear whether she really is speaking English that's understandable to the other person or not. Like clearly Mm -hmm. with the sheriff in a little bit. She is speaking English, but who knows? Yes. I don't know where she picked it up from. I just kind of go with it, too. So, again, I love Aaron watching Sesame Street. I love the fact that Jim Henson is calling back to Jim Henson. <laughs> as we all know, Jim Henson does the pep- Jim Henson works does the puppetry for, for Farscape, and it also does all the puppetry for Sesame Street. So mm-hmm. there you go. Yeah. And I love how Aaron is impatient that they're talking about Cookie Monster. Who cares about Cookie Monster? (laughs) (laughs) You can only hear it kind of slightly in the background while Chiana and Dargo and Rigel are arguing. And Chiana wants to go explore. And I kind of love that. She just wants to go out and she loves John and she wants to go find out more about his world and she doesn't like being cooped up. So she's going to dress up as a human and go out there and pretend it's Halloween, which is, I think it's October 30th at the moment. So Halloween's the next day. So... I, I don't know. I also love Rigel here kind of being like, I don't really want to go out. I want to hang out here. But then <laughs> later he does want to go out because apparently sugar, like uh-huh. I guess purified sugar is like crack to Rigel, which is one of the best gags in this entire episode. Because <laughs> like at some point somebody buys Rigel candy 
And I so, think John does. Yeah, John or- does. And he starts, and so like Rigel starts eating the candy and then he starts being like a crack addict and he's like, I want yeah. more, I want more. And his hands are shaking and he has a knife and he's stabbing a pumpkin because John told him to carve a pumpkin. And so he's like, I'm cutting, I'm cutting. And it's just like, it's like, I don't know, uh, what is it, Psycho with the knife? <laughs> it's like Rigel the Psycho from, from being high on sugar. Oh my gosh. And then it gets better later because then John cuts him off. But much like cutting off a crack addict. Then Rigel starts robbing children for their candy <laughs> during trick or treating. It's fantastic because he's figured out that he looks like a toy, and so he'll come and they'll come in and and get want to get a closer look at him. And then he opens his eyes and freaks him out. Okay, which is like everybody knows this is an abandoned crack house. So I am not a hundred percent why <laughs> parents are letting their children go in the abandoned gang house because it was the nineteen eighties before children were on such short leashes. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I do vividly remember going trick or treating without my parents in the eighties. Oh yeah, I never went with my parents even into the nineties. Yeah, so actually, so, yeah, yeah, it probably was- would have been the nineties for me as well. Now that I'm thinking about it, because I was like in 1990 so yeah i mean i had my older sister but you know we were just kind of given free range of the neighborhood and i think that's going on here too which brings us to the crack house subplot that we have of there's a nosy neighbor who's interested in all these people who have suddenly shown up at this abandoned house and there's this great scene where she kind of just walks in and Aaron just holds the curtain which is passing for the door for her and she just walks in and looks around and walks out and it's just like no one quite knows what to do and they're all you know none of them are like in disguises or anything yet Aaron's still in leather Dargo's still in his full regalia and Rigel is still sitting on the couch she calls the police on him but and before she comes in she actually passes Chiana, who thinks that the middle finger oh, right. is a greeting. So <laughs> Chiana backs her up against the wall, giving her the middle finger, which I'm like, I don't know how this episode, like, as I remember this episode airing on TV, but I'm like, I didn't know that you could just air the middle finger on TV. <laughs> I don't think they blurred it out because Chiana's literally just like flipping her off. You well, know. it was on a cable channel, so maybe the rules were a little bit different for cable. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know they... actually what the rules are for gestures. Yeah, uh, that's true. Gestures. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, and, and Shanna's kind of like offended that the woman doesn't flip her off back because she thinks it's a greeting. And so that's why she gets in her face so much. She's like, does it twice. <laughs> so the the neighbor calls the police and the sheriff comes in. And this time the, the crew is a little bit more like, uh-oh, there's an enforcer, police. And we've got to make sure that we aren't discovered or anything like that. So here's that next little scene. And this time they're all dressing up to try and hide their alienness. Looks like an enforcer. He has a weapon. Dargo, you should put this on too. Aaron knows enough English to get us through. Just remember the plan. The plan doesn't work if we use force. Hello. Yeah? How can I help you? Uh, well, this house was, uh... Abandoned by our uncle. Would you like to come in? Yeah, thanks. Oh. <gasps> Listen, I'm afraid I had a, uh... A complaint? From the lady, yes, I think she was scared. She saw Kermit. We thought the batteries were dead, but it's just a silly toy. 
Grandma, say excuse me. Okay, where are you from? Whoa, whoa, whoa! Don't move, pal. It's all right. He's just my brother. It's a Halloween, remember? He's, uh, he's dressed up. In a mask. Well, that's a mask? Yes, of course it is. You're, uh, a little old to be dressing up for Halloween, aren't you, pal? No. Yes. Bite me. Okay, take off the mask, pal. Now. Take off the mask. Oh my god. So I just love that that Dargo uses his three words there, yes or no, yes, and bite me. And when he's slowly saying bite me, you can see Aaron's <laughs> eyes closing in horror because she knows it's gonna happen next and she just can't stop it. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's so good. I think that this episode is really benefited by the fact that all of John's kind of like really deep emotional drama stuff is under is kind of not undercut, but is kind of contrasted with the comedy of this whole like gang mm-hmm. slash crack house plotline. <laughs> it is. It really is. Because it's such a, you know, the nosy neighbor is such a, you know, it's also a trope, right? But yeah, so Aaron right now is dressed in a 70s share outfit is how John describes it when he sees it. It's um, a, got She's got a bare midriff. And I really love when she goes out, you can tell, this is like, I love Claudia Black. She's She speaks kind of slowly and with a different cadence to kind of say, okay, she's speaking actual English now and it's not her native language. And mm-hmm. you can hear that in her delivery of the lines. Yeah. And it almost sounds like she's using like a South African accent because you want, it's like she's speaking English. It's the same way that like, if you're trying to speak American English, you know, you're going to sound different than if you're speaking like a uh, like, I don't know, Australian English, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she she lets him in and they're going to try and pass as being Halloween. And Norianti has uh, like a headband on to cover her third eye. And Rigel, poor Rigel gets thrown on the floor as a quote unquote toy. <laughs> and then Dargo sneezes and that's why he gets discovered. And he's wearing um, a football jersey over his uh, over his armor. And in the scene that follows, because that was went to a commercial break, so I didn't pull all of the whole scene norianti this is where she's like oh he's in a mask he's in a mask and she blows dust in the sheriff's face to say and gives him a subconscious message of like see what you want to see see a human you think is there and so in the sheriff's perspective we see dargo's head come off and it's a black man underneath wearing a football jersey so he's like okay and then he he leaves but he's a little weirded out by this whole experience <laughs> understandably so and it just gets better with this whole little plot line of the of the uh, sheriff trying to check out this house. Like I've said multiple times, I miss Zan so much. And I think the show misses her a lot too. I I think that in a lot of ways, we wouldn't have the season four moral kind of like, I don't want to say like moral vacancy, but kind of like, I don't think the crew would be able to get away with, do what you want. We don't care if Zan was (laughs) around. And At the same time, I I think that Noranti, this is one of those moments when I'm like, I'm so glad she's on the show because who else is just going to randomly blow drugs at somebody (laughs) (laughs) to solve their problems, right? Yeah. And then so the sheriff comes back a few scenes later. 
we're just gonna I'm gonna talk through this one real quick. He's peering over the over the the stone wall by the house, and Norianti comes up the other side and blows more powder in his face, and then she kidnaps him and sticks him in the empty pool and is doing like experiments on him with the serum that she's developing because, as we'll get to in a moment, um, they've come up with a way to get uh, Jack off of the Challenger by recreating event from John's childhood where he was in a burning house and had smoke inhalation and they need to put him in a coma to simulate the coma that John was really in. Anyway, we'll get to that back in a second. (laughs) But she's like experimenting on this poor sheriff while he's unconscious or semi-conscious. And Dargo is like, stop doing that. What are you doing that? We can't be doing that to enforcers on this planet. And then the two of them drag him back out to the sheriff's car and get him in and then Dargo's <laughs> trying to drive <laughs> his ghost like no you should be doing this Norianti's backseat driving and then the neighbor comes up and, and Dargo doesn't know what to do so he gives her the finger kind of perfunctionally and then turns back to driving really badly <laughs> it's hilarious and then they abandon him with a bottle of booze next to him and it doesn't quite work because he ends up getting a warrant later. Yeah, and the coming back. And we'll get to that when those two plot lines converge. But let's get back to John's plot line. Yeah. So John realizes that his younger self is right. A younger John will not be able to convince his father <laughs> to, get it, to stay off the Challenger. So he tries going to his mother and he mm-hmm. runs into Aaron, who kind of starts to tell him that maybe Chiana is gone and they've kind of got this whole issue with this house. But they quickly get sidetracked by this big emotional thing that John is going through. Who? What? That's my mother. She died four years before I left. Now I'm going to talk to her. Excuse me, ma'am. Do I know you? No. You read the cards. I know, it's silly. Everybody thinks it is, especially my son. It's not. He's wrong. He's just young. It's not silly. It's a little strange. But that, that's why I'm here. Um, I did a reading in Gainesville, and I uh, saw your husband. Jack. Yeah. Don't let him go tomorrow. Make him stay till Monday. I, I did a reading. I... God, is this something... I don't know. Just don't let him go this weekend. Don't... Don't back down like you always do. How do you know that? in your face. You're a peacemaker, not a fighter. Look, just uh, don't let him go. I'm sorry I bothered you. Wait. Are you sure? I don't know you. No. You don't know me. Oh, and the thing that, that really breaks my heart about this whole scene is that 
John is very rarely looking directly at his mom. He's looking mm -hmm. off to the side. His eyes are flickering to her and away. He's having a really, really hard time with talking with her because he has so many emotions wrapped up because he lost her. He wasn't there for her when he died. That's what we learned in Won't Get Fooled Again in season two. And it's it's just, it's, I don't know, the body language here is just so well done of how mm -hmm. difficult this is for John. And also you can see that when he said to his earlier self, you know, most of, you'll get over most of your issues, he still hasn't quite gotten over the issue of the way that he thinks that his father treats his mother. Yeah. You know, where he's like, don't back down like you always do, which is mm -hmm. kind of, I think that John is still really holding on to this very teenage view of how parents interact. And I'm not saying that there aren't abusive relationships. And, I, and I'm not saying that Jack's father wasn't kind of emotionally abusive to his mother, but we also don't really get a broad enough picture of their relationship because we really only have John's view of his parents. And I think that it's very teenager to kind of see your parents' relationship one way. And then as you get older and see their relationship in a different way, I think that, or even when you get older and you get in your own mature relationship, you realize that relationships are often complicated and that yeah. what what children see is often just a very, very narrow picture of what their parents' interior lives are actually like. Yeah. You know? And we actually get a glimpse of that, that change in perspective a little bit later on when Chiana and John are going off to find um, young John. They stop by the house or they're going past the house and they see Jack and his mom talking and, and laughing with each other and kidding with each other and just being playful with the tarot cards and enjoying each other's company together out of sight of their children. And John, and John says, this is something I didn't see from them very much. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's like a little window into their private lives that he did not know about that he's finally actually getting to see a little bit of in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that moment is, is really important because as problematic as their relationship probably was, because even though, like I said, even, I'm not defending Jack here because clearly they did have some major, you know, he and his wife did have major issues. But at the same time, I think that John is still really holding on to this very teenage view of who his parents mm -hmm. are and who his mother was. But meanwhile, you brought up Chiana, who yeah. Chiana has run away from the house. <laughs> She's she, not run away. She's gone exploring. She's gone exploring, which is so <laughs> in character for Chiana. I love this Chiana. Yeah. She has gone exploring. She runs into young John Crichton. In his truck. In his truck. Has who sees her and says, hey, you go into a party because she looks like she's dressed up for Halloween and he offers her a ride. Now, I did side-eye this a little bit because I was like, young John, you have a girlfriend. What are you doing? Oh, yes. <laughs> but uh, so Chiana climbs over the hood of the car and slides in the window without walking around and everyone's staring. And, you know, John tries, young John, Johnny tries to introduce himself he's, and or find out her name first of all. And then she turns up the music. So when she says Chiana, he mishears and says Karen and she agrees. And then she's looking at the cigarette lighter and thinks it's cool. And so she makes a sound like Shaw, that's really cool. And he thinks, oh, your last name is Shaw. So your name is Karen Shaw, which goes back to one of the season one episodes 
of when uh, John was telling Dargo when he lost his virginity. So just putting that out there. <laughs> yeah. Which, and this I can't is remember actually, which episode it was, but um, they pulled back from that season one episode. I feel like it's like a Bug's Life or uh, one of those episodes where they were having people take over their bodies. Oh, it um, was a Bug's Life because it was how they were. It's how he was telling Dargo that he was really John Crichton. Right. Or was it's either Exodus from Genesis or A Bug's Life? I feel like it came later in the season. Okay. So someone tell us we can't remember that far back. <laughs> <laughs> but we did at the time. I do remember that we said, hey, remember Karen Shaw? <laughs> yeah, it's going to be important later. Here it is. The other thing, this is kind of when I began to wonder, though, because so Chiana meets up with John. They go and kind of make out or do something. They go and hang out. And then yeah. she runs into John later, and then they decide to go kidnap his younger self and recreate this fire because John has this memory of he goes, 17 years ago, I was in a fire and mm-hmm. my dad rescued me, and then he wouldn't leave my hospital bedside because I was in a coma for two days. And then when NASA called, he didn't go. So John doesn't explicitly remember his father being about to be a commander of the Challenger mission. But this is when I began to wonder, did John always go back to the past? Is this kind of like Mm -hmm. one of those things where if John had never gone back to the past, would things have turned out differently anyway? Because if you do the math, and let's pretend that John is 35, right? Mm -hmm. If you do the math, 17 years ago, if he's 35, he would have been a teenager. He would have been 18. Right. So I'm like, did this really happen? Right. Like forever. And then also Chiana just happens to make her name sound like Karen Shaw. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like a 12 monkeys thing, right? Like you try and change the past, but by going back and changing past, you're executing the current future. Yeah. Which is yeah. actually my issue with the Terminator franchise. And I think that Terminator <laughs> 2 really gets at that because yeah. Skynet was only created because the Terminator 1 went back into the past. Right, exactly. So great timey-wimey time travel sci-fi stuff to think about with that, for sure. But the other thing about the the moment that Chiana meets John is when he says, John Crichton's my name, she's like, was distracted. She just thought he was a random boy. But then she like suddenly has her entire focus on him. And later on, when they're hanging out by the canal, he's telling her about all his problems and how, you know, his he can't connect with his dad and his dad never listens. And Chiana's just like kind of there and listening. And it's I don't know, you, it's this cathartic, she's getting to know young John in a way, she doesn't have the same kind of conversations with John as an adult, but mm-hmm. they have that same kind of connection as adults, Yeah, with John as the adult. So she's being a really, a pretty good friend there. Yeah, she is. I like Gianna the friend. And also, it's, I feel like this episode kind of gives her a chance to give back to John in a way that he's really given to her. Like... Mm-hmm. Even though there are so many issues with taking the stone and the way that, like, everybody kind of brushes her off, the fact that she's reaching out to them shows that at, like, certain points, they have been there for her. John has been her confidant in different times. Mm-hmm. Well, look at A Clockwork Nabari, where they're they're really close in that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where, like, he's, you know, he's her, con- you know, he's, he's her buddy. He's her brother, you know? Yeah. And now she's yeah. getting a chance to give that back to him, even though he won't remember it. Or he won't right. remember her. You know, yeah, but maybe this yeah. shows why he's so fond of her later on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they have to get John back to the crack house, the crack house, and so Gianna eventually makes it back to the crew, and then they have 
I think that's like overnight because this happens on the 30th and so then it's the 31st. So she comes back to the house for the night and they come up with their new plan. And so John gets Kim, the girlfriend, to take young John, Johnny, to the canal so that John and Tiana can kidnap him. And it's kind of during that sequence where John is again accidentally flirting with Kim and then trying to walk himself out of it. And then Tiana's just like, hi, and punches her to knock her out and says, we're in a hurry. <laughs> What's wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> and so they get uh, young John back to the house, but they're waiting for Norianti to finish the concocting of the serum because it's going to take half an arm. So to distract John, young John, Johnny, I keep doing that. And while they're sitting in the garage, Tiana, you know, deflowers him which is kind of great and then he's sitting so- in the house afterwards in complete <laughs> shock it's hilarious he is completely shocked by his deflowerment he really is he really is and uh so then chiana gives him the serum and he drinks it he actually has a bad reaction to the serum and starts choking just about the same time that the sheriff arrives with a deputy and a warrant to search the crack house so we have these two plot lines converging at the same time so we have half the room chiana and noranti and john freaking out about john dying johnny dying um because he's not supposed to and John, our John, starts to disappear and then does disappear because his young counterpart is dead. So now he's out of the timeline. So he's basically a a voice in the room while the sheriff and the deputy come in and Aaron and Dargo are like, okay, we can take him. And they knock him out. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a really, it's really quick fight. Norianti is really gross and, and chews something up and puts it directly in Johnny's mouth. And he revives enough that our John becomes a transparent ghost. And basically, they then are like, we have to get your dad here now. So Norianti says, go use your ghostliness for good. <laughs> and this is when we get the second conversation between John and his mother. And so he's incorporeal right now. He's like this faded person. And he goes to her and he you know it's like the supernatural experience for his mother because she like she like feels his shadow and feels his hand against her cheek even though she can't see them and then we have this really kind of touching last conversation between them mom it's me johnny i love you i've wanted to tell you that for a very long time What's the matter? I'm in trouble. I'm in the Carson house. Get Dad and tell him to save me. Jack! Jack! Mom, listen. When you first feel the pain, don't... Don't wait. I really love the idea of him being his own ghost. Mm-hmm. You know? He actually is really in trouble, and he's like... He has an astral projection that his is this other self of his that he can send to his mother who believes in this stuff or at least flirts with the idea of believing in it to say, hey, I need help. And that's how Mm -hmm. they get this whole thing set in motion. Yeah. And I like that it's also a goodbye moment that he gets with his mother. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like in a way that he wouldn't get if he was corporeal. Because if he was corporeal, he couldn't be like, I'm John Crichton and hey, I love you and you know. I wish I'd told you that more often. But as a ghost, he does get to have that closure with her. Right. And it's something he didn't get as an adult when she died because he wasn't at her bedside when she died. He missed it. And I think that's something that tore him up 
when that happened and still tears him up that he wasn't there for her. Yeah. And then also it's it's interesting because he starts to tell her, hey, when you feel the pain, don't ignore it. But then he kind of stops himself also, first of all, because she's gone. But, you know, he could have followed her and told her. But then also because it's the whole thing of they're trying to get the timeline back to how it was. And if his yeah. mother doesn't die, then the timeline isn't going to be how it was. And it's the same thing later. The the crew, after they've finished all of this, they're in the ship. And and somebody's and I think Naranti is actually no, like Dar- Dargo. Oh, and Dargo says, uh, well, can we save the other people on the Challenger? And mm-hmm. they're like, no, we can't. You know, that would change. everything. Yeah, time has to go on. So the the last little bit with the the house, they get Jack there. Everyone else is on the ship besides Aaron, Dargo, and John. Uh, young John is in the garage. <laughs> Jack knocks himself out on a lamp. So then John and Dargo have to go in and, and rescue both of them and bring them out. So that it looks like that they are, that, you know, that they are the ones that rescued, that Jack rescued John. Which young I'm John. like, how hard do you have to hit yourself on a lamp to knock yourself out because I have definitely hit myself really hard on the head. <laughs> if he's before. running through the house and it's dark and it gets him in the right place and he falls, even if it just knocks him over and he hits his head on the ground, it could knock you out. Okay, I'll give you that. Like that was another <laughs> one of my things where it's like a niggling, like. Mm. But then also, yeah. I had to laugh because I was like, John tells in John's story, he's like, well, then when NASA called. My dad refused to go. But I'm like, I am 100% certain <laughs> that if you had suffered a concussion, which is what happens after you get knocked out, I'm like, NASA would not let you get on any space mission. No, you'd be waiting for at least six weeks, for sure. But yeah, um, so the so that happens. And then, oh, we forgot the, the like, right before... Um, they clear out the house before the others go back to Lola. Norianti does the powder thing on young John and she says, don't remember anything. And then Gianna sees her whispering in his ear and then says, except for Karen Shaw and back of the four by, <laughs> which is not Betty, the truck. It's actually because young John had said, I, 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 my, when I thought I would lose my virginity, it'd be in my dad's four, four, four wheel drive. So also consistent with uh, John's story from season one. And then you have her getting telling the deputy not to remember, but then she doesn't have time to tell the sheriff. So the sheriff is not memory wiped. And so he en- ends up remembering everything that happened, which causes him problems later on. <laughs> which is so funny. They have this really great scene later where he's like in an interview room and he's like, I don't know why everybody doesn't remember. And you can see a Mulder and Scully type behind the window kind of yeah. looking at him really disdainfully. It's good. Yeah, it's good. Um, and then, so they get everyone out. And then the last kind of little bit of this is uh, Jack wakes up um, outside of the house and John, young John is lying next to him and he's really worried. And then his mom comes and the, the, so it's like the little past family. And then Aaron has gone over the wall. Dargo's gone back to the ship and it's just John left. And his father turns around and sees ad- our John, adult John, on the wall watching him and there's just like this electric moment between them of just looking at each other Mm -hmm. which is i don't know it's really powerful because you know it's the man behind the curtain finally being revealed but it's his son and jack might not know that yet but there's there's something going on there yeah it's good so 
that's kind of what happens on Earth. Meanwhile, mm-hmm. on Moya, pilots shut everything down on Dargo's instructions because then Scorpius and Sokozu can't do anything. <laughs> Although Sokozu's pretty bright when it comes to Leviathans, so I think she yeah. could do something. And yeah. she's really mad because she's like, you don't have to shut everything down because now the ship is freezing. <laughs> and so pilot informs them that Braca and Greza are on two Peacekeeper Marauders and they're heading for the ship. Mm-hmm. And they could they could starburst away, but Sokozu convinces Pilot that then they would never find the wormhole again, which I'm like, I don't know that I believe, but okay. You know, and I'm not yeah. saying that and they wouldn't even have to find the exact spot. They could just come nearby and wait for them, you know? Right. But, you know, Scorpius also doesn't want to leave John behind or to chance. You know, they don't mm-hmm. want they want to make sure that or at least Scorpius is very adamant about we cannot abandon John Crichton, because as we know, John Crichton is the most important person to Scorpius. <laughs> Although <laughs> I'm going to get to like my favorite, like my not. My oh, my favorite. God. I love this scene. I've been waiting for it like all season. Oh, so good. <laughs> OK, so remember way back when when I was like, I don't know who Scorpius spy is. Well, it turns out I was right. <laughs> Greza and and Braca come on board and they're threatening Moya with a command collar and Pilot's like, hey, we didn't run. John Crichton is not here. So mm-hmm. they order a complete search. And Scorpius and Sokozu are hiding. Mm-hmm. Braca comes down. He tells his other guys, he's like, go search that tier. I'm going to go downstairs and check it out. And meanwhile, Sokozu's like, we got to go hide in this other place, not the neural cluster where they're about to search. And Scorpius is like, I'll be fine. You go ahead. So she goes ahead and he's left behind to hide behind a wall while Braca comes down with a ladder. So Braca comes down the ladder and his back is to Scorpius and then Scorpius says something threatening and then Braca turns around and then they both are like holding each other's faces <laughs> and Scorpius is like, has she learned that you're my spy? And Braca's like, no. And then Scorpius like kisses his forehead <laughs> and I'm like, okay. I'm like, <laughs> I am not sure how even in 2003, we were not supposed to read this as very, very homoerotic. It so is. It so is. And, you know, they have a little bit of tense moment before the reveal of, like, Braca saying, you're dead. And clearly he's not, like, surprised about it, though. And But, yeah, the face touching because um, it's, I don't know, it's, it's just, they're doing it because they're very close to each other and they have to be close in a four by three shot. But at the same time, it's very much like, oh, my God, Scorpius is so happy to see Braca and Braca's so happy to see Scorpius. And it's like, this is why I ship them. I mean, I know we kind of, you know, have teased it before and talked about it before and the text doesn't like fully support it. But I feel like here you could definitely read that in there if you wanted to. I I mean, yeah, OK, like, let's say the text doesn't support it. And it's definitely like kind of like a wink moment yeah. of like are they aren't they i don't know but i'm like <laughs> they're literally holding each other's faces who would even touch scorpius's face other than a lover because he is such a scary mofo i mean seriously okay and he kisses Braca's <laughs> forehead and it's not in a godfather way okay like i think it was i i'm sure it was written in a godfather mm. way you know in like yeah. a you know marlon brando kissing your forehead way but it's not that. 
There's it really is something it. else to that. So anyway, we find out that Brock is the spy, which I'm like, I kind of I kind of went for, which makes, oh my God, okay, that makes the whole thing on our nest with him leading Scorpius around on a leash so much more kinky. <laughs> it really does. It really does. Because you know that even though he's being all mean to Scorpius and everything, it feels much more like a role play because secretly Brock is on Scorpius's team. Oh, that's so good. Okay, so then, so then Braca reveals that Greza is setting up peace talks with the Scarens. And yeah. Scorpius is not happy about this because he says all they're going to do is agree to everything and then strengthen their army or think, you know, strengthen their armada, strengthen their forces, and then wipe us out. Yeah. So Scorpius does not buy peace talks at all. And he has this great line to Braca that says, we have to stop her at all costs, and the entirety of Peacekeeper civilization might rest on you, Bracca. And it's just like, oh. no pressure, dude. <laughs> I really kind of want Bracca's story and all this because he has a great story. He's you know working for a maniacal captain, Captain Crace, turning to Scorpius, having a you know new challenges with hunting down uh, John Crichton, and then he has to turn on his own teammate to and his potential lover to work for the evil lady and then become a spy. So he's got a really great, like, John le Carre kind of story going on. <laughs> I keep picturing Hercules Mulligan. We got a spy on the inside. Oh, man. Okay. So... Yep. And this is, this is why, though, because Braca is so non- such a non-entity, even to Greza, who's promoted him to captain. As a puppet captain. Yeah, as a puppet yeah. captain. You know, she's promoted him, but, you know, she doesn't even really see him as an entity. She sees him kind of as like a tool. And mm -hmm. Scorpius is like, okay, but you're my tool first. <laughs> <laughs> and Braca likes it. Yeah. So we end on the entire fate of peacekeepers right resting on Braca's shoulders. It's great. It's fantastic. And I feel like it's such a huge payoff for Scorpius and Bracca's storyline to this point, too. It's, I think it's just right. a wonderful reveal. Oh, it's so good. So Greza leaves a mysterious alien that's a DNA-sensing alien on board Moya. And she's like, Moya can't sense you, but as soon as you sense John Crichton, get him to me alive. Yep. And that kind of ends, ends that storyline on, on Moya, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, but then when the rest of the crew come back through the wormhole to where they thought Moya was going to be, she's not there. And they hear her through the wormhole and she says, or and, and Pilot says, come and, come and follow our signal. We did exactly what you said. And they're like, you did not do exactly what you said, or you did not do exactly what we said, or you would be here. And yeah. then we end up back on Earth. Yeah. So is it them going back to Moya first, or are they trying to get Moya to come to them? I think they are trying to go back to Moya, because they're not at Earth. I, were they not at Earth? I thought they were in orbit around Earth, and they were in there. They were like, Moya, come join us, so we can get all back together and go back together. Maybe I'm rem not no, understanding No, because I, right. I, I can't imagine that John would have wanted to stay in the past. Do you know okay. what I mean? So I think they went back... But Scorpius had convinced Moya to go through the wormhole. Or something. Okay. Because I was wondering why Moya had gone through the wormhole in the first place. Yeah, that was my big question. That's another niggling thing. And I think I'm going <laughs> to save all of my feelings for the fact that Scorpius gets to make first contact till next episode. But a preview right. is that I'm forever going to be bitter 
I love the episode, but I'm forever going to be bitter about that. And you should read fanfic because fanfic does some really <laughs> awesome stuff with this. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, point being, John and co go follow a pilot signal and they go to present day Earth where they're in orbit around present day Earth. John makes the first entrance onto the maintenance bay, and who should be waiting for him there but his dad and several government agents, Mm -hmm. who may or may not have been in the interrogation room of the sheriff when he was saying in 1986, (laughs) they were aliens, I tell you, aliens. (laughs) So he obviously draws his gun on his dad, and then it ends on a to-be-continued. Yeah, it's fantastic. And then we go into next week, Terra Firma, our Mm -hmm. next episode, which is the conclusion of this trilogy. Yeah. So there was a little bit uh, that we wanted to talk about. We got an interesting comment on Coup by Clam on Twitter from Not the Far Schnook. Sorry if I'm not saying that right. And he was ta- he wanted to talk about Coup by Clam. And I, I actually kind of agree with this. And he says, I love your podcast. And I like how it just dissects and discusses how things can be problematic that I might not have thought of before. I definitely remember Coup by Clam being a strange and unnecessary episode, even watching it at the time. I binged in 2013. Cross-dressing as a trope is always kind of cringy, so I'm not defensing the episode. However, as a cis white man, even in Britain in 2013, I have to disagree about Crichton's occasionally toxic and fragile masculinity being out of character. Tropes are tools and writing should be better, but so much of male culture still hinges on performity and shaming. You know what? I think that's not wrong. And I like having your perspective on that a lot because, you know, obviously we do not have the male experience being cis white women. It is really nice to be reminded that there are more things than we think about when we talk about these things. So I think that's a really excellent point. Yeah. And I think that's something I've kind of been puzzling over since Kubai Clam is that we mentioned that John always does, you know, dress up. He always does like play acting. But I've been thinking back and really the only play acting he does is play acting that allows him to be more hyper masculine. You know, it allows him to really play on the John Wayne. And I think we addressed that a lot in Blood Runs Clear where, Mm -hmm. you know, he got to literally play John Wayne and um, or Butch Cassidy. (laughs) Sorry. He got to play Butch Cassidy. And 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 we kind of talked about how as like the sciencey guy, that was kind of this friction between him and his father, where his father mm-hmm. got to be the cowboy astronaut, a la Buzz Aldrin, or you know, that kind of generation of astronaut. And John got to be kind of the more modern PhD, you know, holding astronaut. So I think that in a lot of his play acting, because you know, you look at Thanks for Sharing, you look at a lot of others where he's playing a role. And I think he really does kind of tend to play hyper-masculine roles. So kind mm-hmm. of having to ask him to play the opposite, having to ask him to kind of inverse and play a more feminine role, I can see how that would be really hard on him. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think the point about, you know, whether it's in character or not, you know, it goes back to people are more than one thing. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, and like he doesn't want to be seen as less than he is especially in the uncharted territories and now tormented space where it's dangerous for him not to be big and strong because Mm -hmm. everyone respects it's the whole klingon everyone respects strength kind of deal that he has had to grow into because even now as uh his the person he has become in season four is is more masculine in terms of those more aggressive more willing to draw a gun more willing to talk 
big before talking small, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think that you and I have kind of been a little bit of an author is dead kind of analysis when it comes Mm -hmm. to Farscape. Like, we don't often mention writers. We don't often mention a lot of the backstage stuff unless it becomes, like, really painfully obvious. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And so in kind of an author is dead scenario, you kind of have to treat everything you see as canon, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, a lot of the issues with Buffy, for example, was kind of this idea of like, well, that's out of character or like, well, Joss Whedon is like God. And so he's almost a character that exists in the analysis of that show, you know, you know, word of God Mm -hmm. kind of feeling. And I think that just in our podcast, we treat it more as like a author is dead. Mm -hmm. The canon is canon. But if you do take into account the culture of the writers and the culture of the that we lived in in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and even today, you know, there still is that the hyper masculinity mm-hmm. and playing cross dressing as a woman for laughs is definitely a thing yeah. that happens. Yeah. So I think that maybe your and my problem is more just a fundamental problem of cross dressing as a trope, and also the whole mm-hmm. again like the drive by like let's take down misogyny plot line right (laughs) (laughs) and then the fact that they had to tie poor john into that (laughs) right right so thank you again for your comment we really enjoyed thinking about it and uh and again it's really good to have other people's perspectives on some of the things that uh, that we just don't have perspective on yeah because of who we are and where we're coming from with it yeah so what would you give this episode does uh five i love it I know it has a little few problems, but I just love the contrast between the really emotional John meeting his past self and his mom and his parents and all of that, plus the time travel, how it ties into the whole wormhole thing going on, and then the hilarity of aliens on Earth. Oh, yeah. I think that this is like a 4.5 or a 5 for me as well, um, just because I love everything about it. And like I said, most of my stuff was kind of like hand wavy the sort of thing where like (laughs) even as I was like trying to like be like but this is a and then I was like I don't really care (laughs) exactly exactly so yeah it's fantastic episode yeah and we are Farscape Friday podcast on uh, Dreamwith and Tumblr and gmail.com so head us up there and we are Farscape Friday on Twitter and we will see you next time bye